Hey there, I'm Jo and this is Looking Outside, the podcast that explores new perspectives beyond the familiar. I am a CPG innovator and with this show, I'm seeking a fresh take on business topics with some of the most influential and original thinkers. If you find yourself curiously peeking over the fence at what is happening outside your market, industry, or field of knowledge, then this show will help you to explore more of that. Hey everyone, today we're looking outside innovation. Joining me today is the self-described grumpy, definitely pragmatic, and undoubtedly original, Kostas Papaikonomou. Welcome to the show, Costas. Hello, hello. Um, very pleased to be here. Would you like me to introduce myself? Yes, yeah. I would love that. Go ahead. <laughs> we met uh, when I was part of a business called Happen, Happen Group, an innovation agency for uh, mass consumer markets and consumer goods companies, um, which I co-founded back in 2007. And we met somewhere along the journey between 2007 to 2019 when we sold the business to Accenture. Um, I am by origin, actually an industrial design engineer, which was the first half of my career, 10 years before that. And uh, probably explains a lot of the things I've I've done in the world of innovation, uh, taking, let's say, a design and very pragmatic approach um, into the world of marketing innovation as well. Well, you've definitely got a lot of experience when it comes to innovation and just thinking really differently about how do you apply innovation inside of CPG. And I'm so intrigued by the fact that you're an industrial design engineer. So that's a, a very different level of training and mindset that you would have come into the CPG world with, right? But the funny thing is the, well, definitely the era of CPG or FMCG that I've experienced uh, the the responsibility for innovation was actually no longer with R&D or manufacturing where it would have originally sat, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. It was in the hands of marketers and marketers typically do not have an engineering background. Um, and that made me stick out a little bit. Um, the I guess the, the, the benefit it gave me was not only being able to talk about new ideas, but also bringing into the mix how they're actually made. And as such, coincidentally, I kind of stumbled upon what the major problem is, in my view, in the world of innovation for fast-moving consumer goods, at least, is this, let's say, skewing of where ideas are created, which is where the voice of consumer is, mo- is best represented, say, on the marketing or market research side and kind of working in a silo without any real connection to, you could say, the R&D and operations teams who actually need to make stuff. So you see ideas go down a funnel and basically survive for way too long, not realizing they're never really actually going to be made or it's just not going to be viable to create them. And in a way, that was the the, the proposition we built with, uh, with the Happen Group, with the innovation agency. Again, we ran for, what is it, 12, 13 years. Um, innovation succeeds when you do two things. You understand what's the unmet need, what's the frustration, what's basically the, the gap in the market to play, and then just putting a commercially viable solution to answer it in, in market. Really, that's it. It is not more complicated than that. But for some reason, just because of how the industry works and how the businesses in this industry work, those worlds seem to be very, very difficult to bring together. Um, they're also rewarded in very different ways. Well, marketing sort of the function in the business that looks at what's possible without really looking at what's feasible. And then R&D arguably look very much to what's feasible without wanting to even discuss what's possible. So ideally you want those teams yeah. working together. Over the decades that you've been doing innovation, are you starting to see that they are working a bit more hand in hand? No, it's getting worse. 
Oh. <laughs> it's, it's seriously, it's getting way worse. Mm. The uh, you, you say possible, feasible. I would say there's a third one, which is affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if I go back to the early days when we just started the business, if you would do a creative session, you would get like 15, 20 people come along from all across all disciplines. By the end, say 10, 12 years later, if you would do a creative session, you would maybe get three people to come along from the client team. If anything, innovation capability... I've not seen it improve, at least not with, uh, I mean, otherwise we would have been out of business <laughs> if it had. Uh, they would not need to rely on outsiders to come in and help sort it out. And when they go into innovation, they try to take that mindset there and they just say things like, we need to do bigger, fewer, better, and all these things that are simply impossible. And they they're just completely go against how innovation actually works. You need to do smaller, more, <laughs> and then hope <laughs> you, you get it right. So yeah, I wish it were. I wish it were improving, but I don't think it is. Sorry, that's maybe a very grumpy first answer from the. <laughs> well, I think it's it's very it's very much in line with I think what your original you know take um, is on innovation, the innovation world, which is you know very pragmatic, and very much leads me to my first question. So, often when we talk about innovation in a business, it's like a beacon of hopeful change in the organization, as if our mm. innovation endeavors are going to speed us towards accelerated growth. Um, or it's going to give us a competitive cutting edge advantage, or it's going to make us like heralded as the true inventors of transforming the world. But in reality, the average CPG innovation has a higher chance of failure than success. Um, Data analysis that I've looked at shows that 15 to 30% of innovation is likely to, to be maintained in its second year. So you have a higher chance of it dying off before it even hits year three than you do of success. So... It's not hard to understand why innovation potentially is a pessimistic game, even though our natural inclination is to approach it with optimism. So why aren't we looking at it in a more sort of reality check, pragmatic type of way? Why is the, yeah, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) Um, What that really means in my view is just being brutally honest about what the barriers are, first of all. Second, what is really the business objective of the innovation you're trying to push through? Those two things go hand in hand. So if I start with a second, if the business objective, and again, speaking the, the happen language, the old happen language around it, we would we would distinguish three types of innovation you would be doing. One is just to protect what you have. Not It's maybe not respected as well as it should be, but especially just doing your incremental little improvements to make sure you get a slightly better product, you keep your retailers interested and everyone sort of interested in engaging with you. Then there is the innovation to grow specifically. How do things grow? It's because you probably sell to a new group of people you didn't do do to before with maybe slightly modified product. But being honest around, okay, what is the business objective I'm trying to achieve? Because you're creating something that needs to grow your franchise. That's going to be a different type of solution from just protecting it and distinguishing those two and realizing there are different barriers because that's where the barriers come in uh, to achieve them. If you're just doing incremental innovation, for God's sake, don't do anything that your factory cannot do. Uh, You're just making things needlessly complicated and just be honest that small tweaks mean doing a new flavor of the day, for example. That's simple stuff, but it does exactly what it says on the tin, which is it protects. Growing means probably new formats, a new distribution channel, new sales partners, um, more it's extensive review of all the bits and pieces of that whole network that surrounds the product that probably need to be changed or modified just to get to that new audience to create revenue that you didn't have before. Now, the third tier we talked about was transformation, which is, of course, where almost every client starts 
the question as in, ooh, we need to transform. We, ooh, we need to disrupt. Uh, let's go do that. But then when you explain, well, actually, what you're, what you're actually saying is you're going to destroy a lot of the business you already have. Hold on. That's actually not what we were looking for. <laughs> yeah, I love that, though. And the reality check there is, I think, so true that we come in with very vague objectives because often we just say we mm-hmm. need to innovate. We don't say we need to protect, grow or transform. And often, like you said, when we think about innovation, it's that transformational innovation that's very high risk, very low chance of reward, if we're being honest. So Mm -hmm. in your books, you often talk about the ugly reality of innovation. So would you say the those defining those barriers or the lack of objectives is one of the biggest um, ugly realities of why we have such a low chance of success to innovate? Probably the ugliest is the, the low chance of success is driven by not understanding what success is. Um, if you go in and you say we want to transform without a business objective that requires transforming, then by definition you failed before you've even started. What has surprised me for literally for well 15 years that of working in this consumer innovation space is people want to disrupt their own category. I still <laughs> cannot get my head around why you would want to do that. You've probably already say um, calculated in that even just to make it through to the first year is like nine out of ten never achieve that even. So the one out of 10 that achieves that, then another 70% fail to stay there because people haven't asked themselves, what are we here to do? Just even just asking the question, imagine that innovation makes it through to market. What is it supposed to do there? Such a simple question, which you can ask yourself even before you start. Um, and then asking yourself again, is it really connected to a question that it comes from the market or is it me pushing something in there? Um, those considerations all define whether or not you're going to make it to the end. Mm. Now, I mean, ugliness comes along that journey from every possible (laughs) angle towards you, but the the biggest one sits at the beginning. It's not being clear on why you're doing it. I think it's so interesting what you said as well about how we want to almost prepare for the disruption that's coming in our category by disrupting ourselves, almost like destroying what you created in the fear that someone Mm -hmm. else is going to come in and do that. And um, yeah. I think, you know, innovation often is associated with that word around disruption and the race to disrupt. So we know inside of a big business in particular, we really struggle with disruption. We don't handle change very well. The, biz- the business processes and the systems are not, uh, you know, designed around any kind of disruption, small or large. Why are we so obsessed yeah. with disruption in the innovation world? Uh, well, probably partially because of the things you just said. People have seen categories crumble because of a disruptor coming in and changing the rules of the game. Mm. Now, you could probably do a PhD on trying to figure out why it's never one of the existing players in that category that does this, um, which is just another reason to not do it. I mean, it, it's always an outsider coming in, which means your highest chances of, of disruption are always in a category you're not in yet and coming in and taking what you can do very well in your current category, but might be going extinct at some point and taking those capabilities to a category near you, which probably has a lot of similarities, maybe like similar clients, similar channels, um, and changing the game there. I think overall, the belief is that disruption and transformation is always big, um, always overturns whole categories. The reality, let's be honest, most innovation that actually sticks and works and generates revenue is small changes. And it's just not being acknowledged as being as powerful as it is. I mean, how often does it really happen that a category is disrupted and changes into something else? It actually almost never happens. Almost never. Um, 
and few and far between that do succeed, you kind of overlook the many thousands that didn't trying to do it. It's pumped up to be something way bigger than it is, and to the point you also made, something that large organizations are completely incapable of doing. In big business, again, we often look to those small, you know, um, insurgent players that come in and disrupt and uh, often look at startups and these entrepreneurs that come in very dreamily. Um, we think of them as sort of achieving something that we just can't achieve because they have, you know, well, actually, I think one thing that they do have is they don't, they're not competing for resources in the company. You don't have a part of the resources in the company trying to create you know, the innovation that protects and grows, you've got an entire company structured around resources to transform. So they do have that. But there is no reason that we can't, um, you know, achieve what they achieved. If you have the right kind of goal and objective set around what, you know, what consumer need are you actually trying to tap into or create for. Um, but we do often look at them as, you know, wow, they're so inspirational. We often forget about how tiny and short-lived their growth actually is. Is it a good thing to be looking at those smaller competitors and, and trying to mimic that? Or um, are we risking almost being swept up in the dreaminess of it? Yeah, the, it is very easy to get swept up in the dreaminess because what those smaller businesses will actually show you is where is the need changing? And instead of then trying to copy what they do, which is just going to mean they're not even making money. You're not, definitely not going to make money doing it, um, or at least I'm maybe exaggerating a little, but very often they operate on margins that would be completely unacceptable to an organization like your own. Mm. Um, but then see, how can I answer similar needs, the same needs, through the machine that I actually have here, um, through the production capability that I have, through the distribution that I have, all the benefits you have, which a smaller player would never have, put those into the mix to create products that answer the needs they've identified for you. In a way, smaller businesses succeeding at capturing market and stealing it from you is, is a way stronger indication of where the need is going than you could ever achieve through market research because they're doing it through stuff that people are actually willing to pay a dollar for. And market research in the end is always hypothetical. So if you consider small players as your, let's say, your best possible information on what's going in the market, on what the needs change are, take it from that point and then start inventing your own that work for you. Or you can buy them like a lot of companies do, right? Yeah. Um, and how successful is that? I mean, yeah. if, if you look at the business you're in, I think Kind was one of the sort of successes, but it's just like a really, really difficult thing to do. The, um, the, the number of failures is, I mean, it's just a way and way and way longer list. I think I, I tend to agree and I think that there is so much inspiration to be taking from um, parts, uh, other parts of the industry or even outside of our industry that we don't look at. So from your perspective, who are we not looking at to take inspiration about innovation from? What's the underrepresented sort of innovative area in the world? My first answer would be uh, to look at history. And uh, the, the history of humanity is one where human needs, human behaviors, the, the, the humans don't change that much. Basically, we haven't really for the past probably 10,000 years. <laughs> what changes is the context and the technology we create. That's what changes. 
but in a, in a way, we're still very much the same people as we were 2,000 years ago. If you read old philosophy, you'll find some very, very recognizable <laughs> insight in there. Mm-hmm. It's all about retaining connection to the past in a way, because instead of saying everything that came before is bad, you're saying, actually, probably 95% of what came before was not too bad. Um, and we're just going to change it a little bit. So being respectful of that and using that in the new products that you launch. I mean, I'm probably the worst example. I mean, no one can see this on screen, given it's an audio recording, but I'm going to show you my phone. I still use a BlackBerry. <laughs> oh my it gosh. Okay, it's an Android one. It does exactly what I want it to do, um, which is I, I use these things to just send loads of messages. If I answer your question with more of a topic, which is, I think, the topic of the next, say, five to 10 years, which is going to be mined and mature, I guess, is, uh, is what's going to happen is, of course, sustainability, which is a very immature topic still, even though everyone's talking about it. It is an incredibly immature topic in the sense that there are no set rules of how to do this. Even the metrics to define whether you're sustainable or not haven't really settled and are continuously changing. If you compare that, let's say, to the food industry where everyone knows where a calorie is and how, say, fats and carbohydrates and taste and smell and all these things sort of play into a mix in the world of sustainability, all these things don't don't exist yet. That's going to be really interesting to see how that develops over the, say, next few years. I think the mm. era we're now coming out of where growth was always just creating more disposable stuff um, is going to change, and it has to change. Um, and you kind of can see a lot of the ideas being put into market. Well, I can understand businesses are looking to grow with them, but does the re- world really need more of We can debate that. Um, that's probably a whole different podcast recording with uh, another person uh, for you to fill there. Yeah, Um, I think that's really interesting. You know, if we think about, you know, what you said about core human human needs and motivations being being the same as they always have been. So how do we apply the need to have convenient, high reward products around us, but then find the innovation opportunity to be able to serve them in a more sustainable way and looking at sustainability as an opportunity versus just always as a a headwind. Yeah. Um, I think it's is a really exciting space. Costas, one question that I had for you. So um, you've got a book series that you've uh, you you have written about the grumpy innovator and it's it's very original take on innovation being super pragmatic, almost cynical. So how has been um, you know, it's a super, super realistic and almost cynical um, improved your ability to guide towards better innovation. Uh, this sounds is going to sound horrible, but um, it's it's it stops me from uh, well, basically going up into the stratosphere and dreaming there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because being pragmatic is, I guess, in a way, also just about staying grounded. And as much as I can love an idea or love a good insight, is always making a step back and asking myself, is this true? nothing beats going outside. Um, Nothing beats talking to real people, even if you've been working in a particular category for a very long time and you kind of think you know how it works. Um, Step In a way, it's not cynical. Cynical will just be, I guess, it's almost like you're disappointed about something before it even starts. Mm. Um, The hope for me and the positive, say, part of innovating in categories is all about going outside and talking to the actual people that are involved with that product. The other part is it actually is internal and it's spending actual time with people who work in R&D, 
creating the, the new technologies of the future, who work in operations, in supply chain, in distribution, who are actually busy making the things. Um, because what you realize really is an innovation is a product that brings together all of those. And it's just way too easy to just think of it as a piece of text on a piece of paper or a picture illustrated by someone who imagines what it could look like. Innovation brings all of those things together. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's something that will only work if they're all taken into consideration. So being pragmatic, um, in a way is being just about being grounded in that. Mm, I love that. And I love what you said about, you know, getting, uh, getting outside of, I guess, the bubble that you operate in and really getting out into the real world and speaking to people. And there was one thing that you mentioned in another podcast that you were just on, which was Unbillable Hours, about actually looking outside of your own category and understanding how they do it and almost like applying that very different perspective of how they would approach a human being or an opportunity um, and what you mm -hmm. can learn from that within your own category. The handicap we have as humans is we very very quickly get used to whatever space we're in. Um, and in particular, if it is a mature place, like in mature, I mean a well-evolved and developed place, like most consumer goods categories are, is you kind of take for granted very quickly how it works. Because the world is more or less split into types of products, whether you like it or not. And of course, everyone working in food will say, oh no, we're now a health company. Or everyone working in pharma will say, no, we're now a well-being company. Yeah, that's all fine on paper, but the reality is different. Um, and it is such a source of, whether you call it inspiration or just actual insight and understanding, is when you bring people into the mix who come from another place uh, or maybe who help you who help you look through their eyes at a particular category at about at a, how a particular product is consumed or around an occasion and then all of a sudden you realize we have only seen half of it if we go through the happen history working on uh, insect repellents and it's all about command and control sort of of the of the of the space and making sure the wrong things don't get in and the good things do get in spending time with people who work in the army, literally soldiers and generals, talking with them about how they do that in their space and how mm -hmm. they sort of command and control on the ground when they're on the battlefield, you realize there's so many parallels here. I'd never looked at my own category this way. Or with um, in home care, in particular home fragrancing, we spent time with someone who's basically spent five years in jail and had to turn an empty cell into a home. And the thing wow. a person like that goes through and explains what's important, what isn't important. And you're and literally ourselves, but also the client just sitting there thinking, bloody hell, we just thought it was about smell. <laughs> no, there's so much more you then realize you can explore. And innovation then gets really easy from the idea point of view, because you realize all these unmet needs, all these frustrations that exist that you hadn't realized, which you can then start finding a solution for. It's uh, it's pragmatic, but I don't think it's cynical. It's um, If anything, it is just a slight, maybe a slightly different way to get excited about stuff uh, than just, uh, say, basking in your own brilliance about how good your own ideas are. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually just daring to step outside and, and hear something new. Yeah, I really love that. Um, and it sort of made me think, you know, the example of the person in their cell trying to create a home around everything that's coming through now from environmental psychology and how do you create these spaces and connect with nature and mm -hmm. um, I love being able to look at that and see what new research is coming through that. Because let's not forget, I mean, if you have one idea and you create that idea and you market that idea, you're kind of done. <laughs> if you have one really good insight, 
you can build a whole company around it um, with hundreds of ideas that are all answering that that one insight in a smart way. That's basically how strong brands are also built. Is they understand what's really the need here, what's really the need that is going to continue to frustrate <laughs> um, and continue to give us reasons to create new solutions. Mm. That's uh, that's when you know you're really into something strong. I'm a big believer of designing for people, for human beings. So finding what's actually mm-hmm. going to be truly relevant and meaningful for, for somebody else to improve their yeah. quality of life or to give them joy or whatever it might be. Yeah. We we talked a little bit about, you know, it, approaching innovation for, with a reality check sort of mindset and starting from there. And I, what I'm really happy about is throughout the, the whole conversation, we used pretty minimal amount of buzzwords. Innovation has a lot of oh. <laughs> a lot of buzzwords yeah. around it. Um, so what's your most hated innovation buzzword? And let's just get agile, pivot and ninja out of the way. Oh, my God. I'm just uh, <laughs> reaching back because in my third book, The Afterthoughts of a Grumpy Innovator, I have a whole glossary of innovation buzzwords. There are so many I hate. I'm going to say storytelling is a um, oh, is a buzzword that really really freaks me out <laughs> because it has it is and I, again this is a really really tricky one because it has a very positive side and it has very very dark negative sides because it actually does the opposite of what is being pragmatic it presumes there are stories everywhere. Things do not necessarily follow each other in a very logical form or for any particular reason. They just happen. Storytelling is, in a way, taking bits of information you know are connected and see if you can create a narrative around it. Now, a narrative is necessary because people are also much better at remembering stories than they are just random lists of facts. But what you do see, and I think we're actually currently living through a period with um, the corona crisis where a lot of stories are being spun um, around maybe not necessarily connected facts. Um, And it becomes very, very difficult to distinguish the stories from what's actually going on. I mean, I remember it coming up was around 2015 or 16. It actually came, funnily enough, through the world of market research. Storytelling was the skill you needed in um, in market research to present back all the things you found. But of course, what happened was people started building stories around things that weren't necessarily true. <laughs> it was just how they found a nice way to connect facts in their head. And humans are really, really good at creating stories and seeing patterns where they don't exist. So yes, that's a uh, that's a uh, a buzzword I would say which has a very long and ugly tail if it's used incorrectly. It's a really good reminder as well to think maybe more carefully about some of these things that we're talking about inside of a business, some of the brands that you see that are trying to make a change for what they stand for, that goes quite against what their core actually is. The way that they're trying to Mm -hmm. do that is through clever storytelling. And the reality is that the consumer can see right through that, right? Absolutely. So, Costas, this was absolutely so much fun. I have one last question for you. What is your go-to when you're trying to push yourself outside to always be looking at something different yeah so it's 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 literally that especially in the the well the circumstances nowadays where everyone's locked behind their desk working from home and actually almost forgetting there is an outside Mm -hmm. going outside that is for me the the place to spend as much time as i can whether it is in urban environments and just picking up the history and just seeing okay 
what's been going on here um, or in more natural environments where you can basically have the wind blow through your brain and <laughs> sort of cleanse <laughs> some of the maybe the, 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 the more bizarre thoughts that get in the way of, uh, of a breakthrough idea. Love that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and also for bringing your personality and your pragmatism into the, the business world of innovation. I think that we really need it and we really benefit from it. So huge thank you for being on the yeah, show. Yeah, with pleasure. And uh, thank you for inviting me and uh, wishing you good luck with uh, number five, six, seven, and hopefully many, many more of these podcasts. Thank you so much. Huge thank you for tuning in. I hope you find the conversation with Costas inspiring, entertaining, and that you find your own inner pragmatist. If you like the show, please do subscribe, give it a rating, and share it. I really do appreciate it. Until next time, this is Joe. Keep looking outside. Mm-hmm.